Device Week, a podcast from MedTech Insight. I'm Executive Editor Sean Schmidt, and today I'm joined by Managing Editor Elizabeth Orr and Senior Reporter for Dose Al Farouk, also known as Danny. Elizabeth, we'll talk to you in a few moments about a U.S. Food and Drug Administration panel meeting you attended this week on dermal fillers that yielded some surprising information. But first, let's chat with Danny about the big news of the week, and that's the impending departure of FDA's second-in-charge, Amy Abernathy. Tell us what that means for our listeners. Thanks, Sean. Yeah, I think it would be pretty accurate to say that it was a huge surprise when FDA's acting commissioner, Janet Woodcock, sent out an agency-wide email that Abernathy was leaving. As you know, Abernathy is the principal deputy commissioner, which makes her, as you said, the second in command at the agency. She's been leading the agency's efforts to modernize its data tools and streamline how product sponsors submit applications, as well as how reviewers are able to use that data. From what I recall, Abernathy was brought in specifically for her strong understanding of how to use data in healthcare. That's right. She's a former cancer researcher and a professor with a PhD in informatics from Duke University. She later went on to become chief medical officer at the oncology analytics company Flatiron Health. All of that means she has a unique set of skills and experience in data informatics and analytics. In fact, she was recruited by former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb specifically to modernize FDA's IT systems and transform how it not only interacts with product sponsors, but also how it reviews those products. And it appeared Gottlieb was really grooming her for the top job at the FDA, but I guess that's fizzled out. That's right. It's been long reported that Gottlieb really wanted Abernathy to step up to the commissioner role, but despite multiple administrations and health and human services secretaries, that job just kept eluding her. In fact, as the Biden administration is looking around for a new commissioner, her name has been surprisingly absent from the conversation. It sure does sound like she's leaving specifically because she's not going to get the commissioner job. Well, we don't know, but Abernathy does say that she thinks Woodcock is the right person to helm the agency at this time, and she says she's leaving because she feels like she's accomplished what she came to the agency to do, which is to modernize its data infrastructure. I think even Woodcock acknowledged in her letter to FDA staff how despite commissioners coming and going, Abernathy has continued to be a critical asset to the agency. Let me read you a little snippet from the letter that Woodcock sent. So here, Woodcock says, quote, Throughout multiple commissioner transitions and historic pandemic, Amy's focus on the FDA's core technology operations has resulted in a remarkable modernization of the agency's technology and data practices. More than anything else, this modernization has been about the people behind the technology at the FDA and how they can perform their work to best support our mission, end quote. I think that kind of acknowledges the fact that Abernathy has continued to do her work despite being overlooked for the commissioner role. And as Woodcock emphasized in her letter, Abernathy played a key role during the pandemic. Yes, one of the challenges during this pandemic has been over information sharing quickly enough to get new life-saving products such as diagnostic tests and vaccines to the market. To that end, Abernathy has been critical to the FDA's work in aggregating data under the COVID-19 Evidence Accelerator Program. It was developed by the Reagan Udall Foundation, the FDA, and the Friends of Cancer Research to help fill in data gaps in evidence generation during the pandemic. I think it's a very interesting example of how important data and communication between industry, academia, and the government is during a public health crisis. So before I let you go, when is Abernathy's last day at the FDA and what's she planning to do next? 
So the details are not very clear. She's expected to leave the agency sometime in mid to late April. And as for her plans after she leaves, right now, all she's saying is she's going to spend some time with family and plans to do some writing. Interesting that she's leaving the agency without having a new gig lined up first. I guess we'll see where she lands. Thanks for that report, Danny. Now let's turn to a different topic, and that's dermal fillers. Fillers like Juvederm and Restylane have been growing in popularity in recent years, but that growth has brought with it an increase in adverse events tied to their use. The FDA held a virtual panel meeting on March 23rd to discuss steps it could take to increase the safety of patients using the fillers. Here to unpack all of this is Elizabeth Orr. Thanks, John. The General and Plastic Surgery Devices Panel of the Medical Devices Advisory Committee met to talk about FDA's proposals for changes to device labeling, as well as additional research into what patients might be most at risk for serious adverse events. As you said, the meeting was prompted by a sharp rise in the known number of serious injuries tied to dermal fillers in recent years, going from 158 in 2000 to 484 in 2010 to 1,146 in 2020. Most common injuries were skin irritation and edema at about 1,500 reports each over the last five years. But the FDA was most concerned with 470 incidents in which patients experienced vascular event, which could mean anything from skin necrosis to stroke to a sudden loss of vision, after a failure was accidentally injected into a blood vessel. Oh, wow. Does FDA have any theories about what's causing the rise in adverse events? They seem to think it has to do with both the approval of more fillers for a wider range of indications and with physicians moving into dermal filler administration who don't have specialized training. For example, FDA medical officer Henry Lee said no incidents involving the loss of vision have been reported in clinical trials for approved dermal fillers, which typically recruit highly skilled clinicians. Instead, These events all occurred after a filler became available to a wider range of clinicians. But while comprehensive training seems to be a must, the FDA said that no research has yet established how much or what kind of training is appropriate. So what other steps did the FDA and panelists recommend for ensuring patient safety? Well, one recommendation is screening patients for vision problems both before and immediately after the administration of a dermal filler, which can help catch pre-existing visual issues. Some of the panelists said that a test as simple as asking patients to count the doctor's fingers would be enough to detect catastrophic events without being too complex for doctors who don't specialize in ophthalmology, while others felt it wasn't necessary given how rare the vision events are. Agency staff also advocated for more consistent labeling among sponsors to present the fillers' benefits and risks more clearly, as well as labeling that includes more information about the use of fillers in different anatomical areas or for uses with different risk profiles. For example, injections in the nose seem to pose a higher risk to vision than injections in other parts of the face. Another interesting FDA recommendation was that manufacturers create a patient device card that could be included in injection packaging and sent home with the patient. It could show injection information, adverse event information and precautions, device and manufacturer information, and instructions on how to report an adverse event. Some of the panelists really like that idea because right now, patients don't necessarily have the best records on what exactly they were injected with, which can cause issues if problems develop later. Any other suggestions? Oh, yeah. Panelists also suggested that societies run dermal filler registries to collect more and better adverse event data. 
They opposed an FDA suggestion of more formal post-market studies, both because serious complications are relatively rare and wouldn't necessarily occur in a reasonably sized clinical trial, and because doctors already understand the basic physical mechanisms behind why the adverse events occur. And finally, the panel backed an FDA suggestion for more diverse clinical trial populations. The agency already asks that filler trials incorporate patients with all Fitzpatrick skin types, which is a six-point scale of complexions from very fair to very dark. But the agency asked panelists to recommend other metrics to ensure study diversity. Panel suggestions included age, gender, and past medical history, including past facial procedures. So how did manufacturers take all of this? Pretty well, actually. The speaker from MERS said that after the FDA mandated a change to dermal filler product labeling to warn against intravascular events in 2015, the company saw intravascular adverse events just about vanish. It also sounds like some of these recommendations are similar to what major companies already have in place. For example, Allergan has made patient labeling easy to find on its dermal filler website and offers various kinds of in-person and online physician training. Okay, interesting stuff. Thanks for that report, Elizabeth. Listeners, you can check out these stories from Elizabeth and Danny online now at medtechinsight.com. And for all the latest medtech policy and regulation news and analysis, you can follow us on Twitter at medtech underscore insight. For now, thanks for listening. Thanks.